welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm Troy, the handsome host, and next to me is the handsomer host, Mr. Brian McDowell. How are you, Brian? That's that's really lovely. I, I, I'm actually comfortable with being called beautiful. So if next time you could say beautiful, um, I'm they're interchangeable for me. I'm, I'm okay with that. Well, but thank you. Well, no, worry, no worries, beautiful. That's fine. I can call you that from now on if you like. Thanks, son. Okay, wonderful. So, Brian, we've got a guest today. So we're going to listen to someone else's story, which is cool. I like those because it's far less preparation and far less therapy. But why don't you tell us about who we've got today? We have got Emily John Garcet. And Emily is a, what is she? She's an artist. She's a poet and ex-missionary with YWAM, which we are really looking forward to digging into. She's an all-round creative enthusiast and author of the memoir, Hitchhiking with Drunken Nuns. What a fantastic name. There was also a podcast, which I understand was before the book. Um, is that correct, Emily? I had a brief foray into podcasting. Yes, and... I, I, and- I, I did see the podcast and I saw that it predated the book. and it's, So we're going to talk about that. And also her latest book, The Quiet Woman, which I have a sense that Emily's not. Uh, and that's a collection of poet, poetry, painting, artwork and ideas. She's lived in Argentina, the Netherlands, and now resides in her homeland of the UK. Welcome, Emily. Thank you for having me. And can I affirm that you are indeed both very beautiful women? Um, women, I nearly said. I'm talking about the quiet woman. Yes, I'm sitting here. <laughs> I've been a regular listener for a while and it's wonderful to see your actual faces. Very, very I'm quite excited. happy with being called a beautiful woman because that's cool. I'm inclusive when it comes, you know, to, to being a woman. I just wish there, there were more women and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to let in as many people as possible. And and this may be like a word. It might be like a prophecy. One day we may become become women, and you've already foretold it. And we will be beautiful women. Yes, amen, amen. Praise the yes. Lord. Um, we love to ask this question at the start, Emily. Every time, it's it's not a new thing. Maybe this season we've sort of done a little bit more consistently. We've got to establish your fundy cred. Were you a teenage fundamentalist? 100%, you know, I was all in, all in with as much all as I could, I could muster. And I kind of think the people who um, go all the way in often kind of come all the way out as well. I think it's about the the inertia, isn't it? You know, it's how fast you're moving, you know, you, you keep going, you keep going, you keep pursuing truth, and then you pop out the other side, like a sort of a, a second rebirth. I said that oh. to someone, and I think I got it from Bart Campolo, that I started leaving the church the day I joined mm. because I think you're just looking for this purity, looking for this truth, and you continue on, continue on, and the reality is eventually it does lead you to the other side. Even if that means you've retained some sort of Christianity, I don't think you really can cont- uh, retain any fundamentalism if you're genuinely seeking for the for the true story or for the whole picture. Yeah, and it's it's all about the data, isn't it? You know, when you look into the to the data of the people who um, are identifying with the deconstruction movement or whatever you want to call it, it's it's not this idea that people who are still kind of in that the evangelical church have that it, it's all of the lukewarm people who quit and leave. I think 
Uh, I was so eager not to be lukewarm when I was in YWAM and in the church. And and often I think that earnest pursuit for for goodness and and truth and kindness really just keeps you keeps you moving. So you're born again again. So born it's again the, again. Born again again. Nothing and again. wrong with that. Yes. And a few more agains. Well, in a few and, different ways. And I think we will we'll talk about this as we do unpack your life, which has been you know, a weird and wonderful life and incredibly adventurous. And your book speaks of you being a creative, an adventurer. Your growing up just sounded wonderful. It sounded like it was a, a journey which was constructed by you because I think you do have a very unique way of looking at the world and that comes out in your writing, which I've got to say is beautiful writing. I really enjoyed your book. I, th- I think it was so many great stories, but just the way that you add colour to your writing is it just got me invested in it. So thank you for writing that book because I, I do think that our listeners would enjoy it, Hitchhiking with Drunken Nuns got to get onto it but tell us about your life what did it look like growing up did you grow up in a a faith community a a, a christian family or tell us about that uh my book starts um in my very early childhood when i'm in in north wales close to the sea and the mountains and connected with animals and and nature and uh you know that kind of oneness that you get as a young child when kind of all of those things are, are connected and uh, my my mother became a Christian because of some some local Christians that she met and then we moved to the countryside south of Manchester and joined uh, uh, a non-denominational church that after a few years became assemblies of God and so uh, that was a big part of my community and the interesting thing is um, when I look back at that time hopefully the book portrays it as you know kindly because community is everything isn't it I had a wonderful youth group I had uh friends and I could go around to their houses and we had sleepovers and prayer meetings and um a lot of fun and uh, a lot of community and sometimes I look at my children now and the way that I'm raising them outside the church and I kind of think am I doing this right should I be um indoctrinating them in in something because I kind of think as parents we do indoctrinate our children whether it's in atheism or Christianity or in some sort of sport or whatever it is that we're passionate about um and so that was the space that my parents chose for me and I I don't blame them for it I think kind of the way that we're raised form forms us doesn't it but I what I love is this idea that we continue we're allowed to continue to grow and to to move through that and to take the good parts of it. And, you know, it's all about growth, isn't it? Rather than being stuck. I think the thing for me that becomes problematic is when um, things become stagnant, stagnant and we're forced to stay in one place and we're forced to continue to keep believing the same things. I have always had an interesting thing for me is that my dad is a scientist so I was always allowed to have 
the rational way of thinking. And I think that's one of the things in the deconstruction movement is that is that um, often people are asked, did you have one parent that was more sceptical than the other? Because that can be a way through and a kind of a way out because we're allowed to use that that questioning part of our brain. So although I might both of my parents were very different people, my mother was more you know evangelical and she would wave her arms around and my father went to a more of an Anglican church where he was allowed to uh, believe in evolution. So that's a little little bit of background. So tell us about the Assemblies of God, because as you may or may not be aware, we had our time in the Assemblies of God, and as we like to call it, the AOG. Was it really sort of classical, Pentecostal, buttoned up scripture and song hymns, or was it more fluid and open and charismatic-y? You know, what, what sort of AOG was it? Um, there were, do you know when there are, characters so it's when it's a small church full of the characters there was the lady who wore had very long fingernails and a lot of rings and listeners won't be able to see this but when she would pray her arms would suddenly go up and you had to be standing at least two meters away from her or you'd have your eyes poked out so during certain songs um, her arms would suddenly go up in the air and there'd be a lot of amens and you know there'd be um, the person who would sing really loudly and really badly. There would be, honestly, so many of your experiences are almost exactly the same as mine. I had a seat buckler, but they uh, they probably said something slight, slightly different. There was the person who would give the word every week in tongues and the person who would translate it, and you were never quite sure if it was a direct translation or maybe separate, were those things connected? Is it okay to speak in tongues and not translate it? You know, all of those same, same um, experiences, I think, that you had. But obviously, slightly with an English accent, maybe. Maybe that was the difference. Well, that was my other question because we used to celebrate, especially at the AOG church we went to, they celebrated the Welsh revival as if there was mm. something really special about Wales. Um, and, you know, besides a sing-song language, tell us what, what that was like. Was there a Welsh flavour to it? Uh, well, that wasn't in Wales. That was in south of Manchester. So I only left Wales when I was about, about seven. So, you know, my experience of Wales was really lots and lots of little chapels everywhere that were left over maybe from the Welsh revival, but that were, were all very empty. And being in a rural community, everything's very um, spread out. So I was in the Peak District, which is you know, south of Manchester, there so i'm afraid not with a welsh accent just an english one just there a derbyshire accent there, there was no famous mancunian revival from memory i did try <laughs> yes i'm sure you did <laughs> and despite your best efforts they are unsavable the there was thing. there was the message 2000 with um Andy Hawthorne, who founded the Worldwide Message Tribe. So there was a lot of, I think it was kind of like, was it rap? I don't know what sort of music it was, but we all got really into it and we'd go to big events and jump up and down. We did think, yeah, we thought we were pretty cool as penty, fundy kids, I think. Well, teens, that's for sure. Well, we were pretty cool. <laughs> In our own eyes. I'm In sure our own eyes. <laughs> we were really cool. Now, I mean, look, the, the Emily I've read about in your book, but also on the web, you know, I've done a, done a, bit, a little bit of cyber stalking um, to find out a bit more about you. Watched a, a few interviews that you've done, one with Phil Drysdale, um, which was a, a really great conversation. So if people want to check that out as well. 
The one thing that comes across incredibly strongly is you're someone who just doesn't fit neatly into a box. And you've held some pretty progressive views around things like sexuality, gender roles, many other things. And even in you know those early days of you being a Christian. And it led me to wonder, how the hell does someone like that end up in the ultra-conservative world of YWAM? Two words, Brian, cognitive dissonance. Fully, I was all in with the cognitive dissonance. (laughs) When it's only you, and this is the thing that's so lovely to see your faces, because I think, you know, it is therapy. Gosh, it's a form of therapy, isn't it? Because we're, um, you know, I listened to, to one of your recent episodes and it's the the recovery trauma from going through all of that and going through all of it by yourself which is what we did so now like 20 years later we get to say hello it's another one there's another person because when it's just you in that space going believe in evolution but I can't say it out loud you know you're the odd one out so you can't fully fully publicly talk about those things and I could and I remember being like 12 and being in that Assemblies of God church going but the Muslims think they're right the Muslims think that they're right I think I'm right they think they're right like how how do I know that I'm right and that they're wrong and why is no one else saying this out loud it's just me um there's a brief little line in my book where I, where I talk about that and kind of say, I felt like, you know, it was just me, but I did go downstairs um, because the, the, the young people had rooms downstairs in the church. I did go downstairs a bit early one Sunday and catch a, find a man called Jim quietly banging his head on the wall. And uh, Jim is quite a bit older than me, but we've always been good friends. So it was, you know, you'd occasionally you'd find someone and be like, did you see that? And that was very rare, very rare experience. So yes, cognitive dissonance. So how did you come into YWAM? How did that, how did that happen? Um, I think when you're an extrovert and you have decided, right, if this stuff's true, um, if people aren't possibly only going to heaven, if they say the magic prayer, then, uh, you know, maybe we need to do something about it. And once you've had, um, you know, you you want to, maybe there's a bit of a desire to get out, you know, to get out of that little bubble that you're in. And you think maybe this is the next step in my journey and in my like personal growth. And if like a gap year, I wasn't told that I could kind of go off and, um, you know, work for a, like a secular charity in a third world country and try and make a difference. That wasn't something that was an option. Like if you wanted to not just get in, stuck into the rut of university, job, car, um, husband, house, which w- didn't seem that appealing to me because I've always had an adventurous spirit, then the option was missions. And, you know, a gap year with YWAM um, was just the the obvious thing to do. So I had another friend and we we looked through the options together. We didn't just want to go for a few months. We wanted to go for the full year. And YWAM was offering a program called A Year Forgot, in which you did a DTS, which stands for Discipleship Training School, um, followed by an outreach phase of another 
two months and then you stay on in your chosen country for another five months and complete a whole year and I just was wanted to get away and uh, for as long as possible and the options that I had I think were Uganda, Russia or Argentina at the time and I chose Argentina. I had like a vague image of like deserts and cactuses and it seemed quite far away and honestly there weren't any cactuses. I was completely wrong about everything that I've (laughs) Back in the year 2000, things weren't weren't as easy to Google. You know, we didn't do that. We just kind of dove into the unknown, didn't we? So coming from England, did you sort of look down your nose at Argentina because of that little squabble that you guys had in the 80s? I didn't even know about it. Oh, come on. I didn't know about I didn't know about politics. I didn't know about what was going on out, you know, outside outside the church. You know, the books that I read were Christian biographies. I was reading like Run Baby Run by Nikki Cruz and and a book called Brutchko about someone who went into the indigenous forest to to save tribal groups. That was the information that, that I had, you know, it wasn't until I was in Argentina that I bumped into a few drunk people who'd casually informed me about things that England had done to Argentina. Um, interesting story about that. I was born in 81 and uh, my father, um, having a child, had thought, gosh, the world isn't a safe place. Maybe there's going to be a third world war. Where could I move that would be a safe place to move to? And he got a map out and gone, oh, look at that. England owned these islands off Argentina. Maybe that would be a safe place to relocate a young family to. And it was the year after my birth that the war broke out. And I always use that story when people are like, I want to move somewhere safe. <laughs> I want to find somewhere that, you know, is a, is a, is a healthy place to raise a child. I'm like, no, no, we're safe. No, we're safe. That's... <laughs> That was my father's story. Australia's safe, Emily. We're, you know, we're a long Apart way. Apart from the spiders. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything wants to kill you. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> one thing in Australia. We have the world's deadliest of just about everything. But that, that's fun. That's what makes it adventurous. See, you love adventure. Mm. You would love it. You know, I, Those... do, I do like animals. I'm not so good with spiders, but everything else is, is good. I'm not a fan of spiders. How long were you in YWAM for? I think... About seven years on and off. I was a bit less than five years in Argentina and then two years in the Netherlands. And so I, a lot of people go in, choose a Y1 base and stay maybe at that one, one base the whole time. But I did manage to get two separate experiences, which gave me a kind of a slightly broader perspective on YWAM because it's easy to think that because of your one experience in one country that's the whole of YWAM and so I, I am able to understand that that because of its decentralized nature YWAM is it presents very differently in, in different countries and in different bases. So do you want to tell everybody about YWAM like who are they what are they and then I'd really like to know how does one join YWAM do you fill in a form do you just turn up? Are you thinking about it? Oh, well, look, to be honest, I did think about it once upon a time. I even went to meetings and then I realized when I was there that having just graduated Bible college, you know, I had three years of Bible college, which took me, I don't know, five years, whatever it took me, I came and went. Then they said, oh, by the way, you have to do this discipleship training program. And I'm like, and in my mind, I'm like, for God's sake, I've just done four years of Bible college and you're telling me that I have to go and do this start over thing. And I realized it was very much, doesn't matter who you think you are, you come in at at the bottom yeah and also they'd have probably gone you know why are you spending that long you know this is it's the last days you know we're on a 
you know time budget here so so don't go spending four years something just get come in young get equipped quickly and go off into the missions field so in 1960 uh, Lauren Cunningham who was the founder of YOM had a, a vision of young people around the world thousands and millions of them washing up onto the shores like waves of young people and he realized that that missionaries until that point had been viewed as older people who had to do what you did study um, prepare themselves and then very slowly um, pick up their heavy cases and make plans and struggle out one by one into the different countries of the world to take God's message and so Lauren's vision of thousands of young people washing quickly onto the shores of the world you know I think that was what inspired him to um, start the uh, his to start YWAM which stands for youth with a mission. And do you know where he came from like what denomination he was from or I think he was originally Assemblies of God. And and why did he have a woman's name? I think he had a woman's name because actually uh, early on he had insight into the need to to be a little bit more non-binary. Actually, let's go back to my name. My name is Emily John Garces and I have just acquired, little little dance, a new uh, second name, which is John. So I got married three years ago and swapped middle names with my husband. That is how I acquired my middle name. So my husband's middle name is now, from role, Laura. So I, I think maybe I acquired the name John just so he would have to acquire the name Laura. And uh, I feel quite good about that. So, so maybe Lauren Cunningham was similarly inspired, maybe ahead of his time. I mean, I highly doubt that, but it sounds good. And and how creative of you guys. I like it. I think it's mm-hmm. a it's a great – and does your husband – because, John, you can sort of – you can get away with because, you know, sometimes someone will be – I could be Brian, John, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just – how does it go he, with Lauren? He – Laura, he doesn't flaunt his name like I, I flaunt mine. I think he's saving it for one of those Christian icebreaker opportunities. So imagine he would be in a home group. And they would say, I need you to tell um, two truths and one lie. And let's see if we can get the lie past people. And then subtly, apart from I've ruined it now with this podcast, he's sut- he, subtly he'd say, well, my middle name is Laura. And and people would have to then guess if that was truth or a lie. So I think he's saving it for one of those yeah, Christian icebreaker opportunities. Tell me about Lauren Cunningham. Do you know Do you know where he came from? Because YWAM are quite charismatic. That's the way I sort of see YWAM. They're very sort of Pentecostal-ish. Is that where he came from or did he sort of grow into that later? Was, I, I don't know. I've never met the guy. And so, um, but what I've heard is that he started off in the Assemblies of God. He in, get this, in 1975, I think it was, um, had this vision, another vision. He's had the vision of the waves and then he's had another vision of these seven mountains. Uh, apparently Bill Bright's had a similar vision at the same time. God spoke to two men in the same way at the same time and they put together this kind of seven mountain theology doctrine idea have you come across that before so yeah in like dominion theology there's kind of this the, yeah the seven mountains mandate the seven mountains it. mandate there it is which is kind of linked back to the new apostolic reformation the nar not the nra it's easy to get them confused 
Um, so it's all very, very linked to that. So but, oh, it's hard for me to talk about, to be completely honest, because it blurs and it gets confusing. If you've ever been in an abusive relationship and then you kind of come out of it and you don't quite know which way's up, which way's down, you're trying to analyse what went on, you know, what the thinking was behind it. And it takes so much time and it's so difficult. So even now, a long time later, it's quite blurry which is why it's quite nice to talk to you guys who have some outside perspective who can kind of help me put some of the pieces together but that's what I'm doing I'm trying to piece it together so you've asked me why I went to YWAM and I went to YWAM because I cared I cared about people's suffering I cared about the pain in the world and honestly as much as I'm talking about cognitive dissonance it wasn't just that I deeply deeply believed in Jesus and you have someone who's 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 standing between the Pharisees who are holding stones and a, and a woman who's about to be stoned. And he's saying, you know, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. And he's saying smart things like that. He's defending the poor. He's saying the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I, with my science brain, I'm like, I can get behind this. You know, this is turning society on its head. It's going out in into the world and it's making a difference it's standing um up against abusive power and that was what I wanted to do and that was what I believed in and at the time I didn't know that YWAM had its roots in dominion theology and in the new apostolic reformation and you know the new apostolic reformation was the term was originally coined by a guy called C. Peter Wagner. His name was Charles, but he decided that he wanted to go with Peter. I think maybe because it sounds more biblical, doesn't it? I think maybe that was his his thinking. And so he decided that um, apostles, you know, that was the way that the church was run in the early times. And he wanted to bring that back. He didn't want to focus on whether something was Protestant or Catholic. He wanted things to be without denominations. He wanted churches just to go back to being how they originally were. And that, you know, on the face of it can sound like a good idea. But it's very interesting how the new apostolic reformation was formed. So these people... Um, wanted the church to grow and maybe that came from a good place because maybe they're trying to save souls maybe they're trying to stop people from going to hell and if you believe in hell then honestly surely that's a caring thing to do but how do you do that how do you um get the numbers in quickly and I think that the new apostolic reformation was was formed of the idea of like you look around who's bringing in the numbers mega church leaders so you know when you Hillsong was was kind of a new apostolic kind of um, like what do you call it like a mega mega church system. So so people could look and see who are bringing in the numbers, who's doing this. Let's put those people in positions of power and let's let's follow them. And the issue for me was was because they they focused on the numbers. They focused on what was happening, not on how it was happening, and, and not at all on character, not at all on character. If someone was a narcissist and they were pushing people to join the church, great, because they're bringing in the numbers. And again, I don't know how I can judge that, because if you think, genuinely think that people are going to hell, and you think, let's not focus on the details here, let's just bring in the numbers. And that was what, you know, why one was about, you know, this kind of 
these seven mountains, the seven mountains were religion, family, education, government, business, media, arts, and entertainment. So all of those areas of society. And so the focus really wasn't on like the mercy ministries, on, on, on doing those kind of traditional missionary things. It was about dominating all of these areas of society in, in order for those people to be Christians and to rule as God, God told us in Genesis that we should be dominating the world. Um, so this is kind of me trying my best. I know it's a little bit hazy and maybe I've not communicated it very well, but this is the process that I am in of trying to understand what why one was and what why one was actually trying to do. Because my experience from being inside it was I want to be helping and I want to be loving people. Why are we just going and praying outside government houses? You know, I want to be making a difference in individual people's lives in a loving way. Um, And it felt like that really wasn't the focus. Yeah. It seems to me that there's sort of two threads going on here. And one is that, and this is from a YWAM perspective, you know, the the word will be preached to all nations and then the end will come. And forgive me if I'm getting that verse wrong, but that was a a big one. Um, And so a lot of these organisations were like, if we hurry up and preach, we will hasten the return of the Lord. And then at the same time, there was this kind of kingdom come, they will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so there's this idea that if we take over, and as I think as someone said recently, cross over to take over, then we will hasten the return of the Lord. And so it was a lot about wanting to see Jesus return as quick as possible. And it was almost like they had things to do. Mm. And if they do these things, then Jesus will return and then things will get better. Yeah. If you remember the talk about the 1040 window, and I can't even remember what where that came from was it about latitudes and longitudes but there was an area yeah I think it was it was a latitude and longitude thing for sure yeah I learned that at um at mission in my missions course at Bible College wow which went more which went for longer than a DTS by the way but according to YOM I still had to do a DTS I don't know they would have said that I was just being arrogant wouldn't they but really I was just like I'm not gonna do that's actually what was the deal breaker for me in the end I'm like oh no I'll come in and you know, start doing stuff, but I'm not going to go into some course where you're going to start to tell me how to pray and have a quiet time or whatever it is that they do in a DTS. Mm. I don't know. So like talking about that, um, my friend Corey had a podcast called Failed Missionary and there was uh, an interview. I think the interview was called Is Why I'm a Cult? And that interview I think is, is now a blog post on Medium and can be easily searched if you put it in failed missionary is why I'm a cult into medium. And he asked that what's the difference between ethical discipleship and brainwashing was an interesting question that he raised. So when you're talking about, I know things, I've studied missions, but I have to go back and do this basic um, training again. And, and it's interesting, isn't it? To ask that question and think, um, what devices were being used during those three months in order to, form young minds and make them pliable and make them want to to stay in missions also you know I think questions raised in that post were were kind of asking about MLMs you know multi-level marketing schemes and how's why I'm similar to that how do you bring people in how do you get them to stay what devices are used during the DCS is things like confession of sins if people are there confessing 
intimate sins and the sins of their parents and the sins of their families? What information does YWAM then have about young people in order to kind of exert a level of control over them? So um, that transcript is there for anyone who wants it. The interview was with a guy called Rick Allen Ross and my favourite thing ever. And I like to bring it away a little bit for me is why I'm a cult or not, because I don't always think that that is useful I think it kind of makes us put up barriers and try and you know completely are all cults all bad I'm surely there were some some good things about about cult experiences I think Rick Allen says um his kind of diagnosis of YWAM is he calls it a destructive authoritarian organization and he says YWAM is not a cult but it does provide you with the full cult experience it makes it sound like um like a good kind of Airbnb review doesn't it we struggled for a long time, as our listeners would know, to recognise we were in a cult. It was, we were, we'd use all that same sort of language. Oh, it was cultish. It was a bit culty, mm. blah, blah, blah. But it was, you know, I, I can't remember how long ago, Troy, maybe a year or something ago, we we both around about the same time went, you know what? It was a fucking cult. Like, there was mm. no doubt there was a, there was so much control over what we could do say think and we had to be shaped into the mold of what they believed fit so I think a lot of people struggle to realize that they were in a cult it's a it's a really difficult thing because it's a reflection on you and maybe your judgment and mm. I, I don't know um, maybe maybe YWAM's a cult maybe it's not I mean I've, I've heard both arguments but I, th- I think words like that are useful when you you are trying to be kind to yourself and you're thinking like if you just think oh it was just a missionary organization it's fine like honestly all of my trauma reactions are just invented by me and I just need to grow up but then if you kind of go that was some serious shit you know like that seriously got into my head and if you if using a word like cult helps you um, it helps you think, yeah, you know, that programmed my brain and now I can start to unprogram my brain. The interesting thing for me, and this is like a real kind of pivotal thing, is when do you then start unpicking it? So that's starting to unravel. If you decide to say, you know, for yourself, you want to say that you've had an experience that was a cult-like experience, that this certain church that you're in was a cult, and then you start pulling at that thread, when do you stop pulling so so for me, I did start pulling at that thread and evangelicalism itself unraveled and I couldn't stop and didn't want to stop pulling at that. So for me, I, I, I can't talk about unhealthy patterns in YWAM without talking about unhealthy patterns in evangelicalism itself. So if anyone's listening to this and have, have found you know, this episode when they're thinking about joining joining YWAM or they've had an experience like mine and they've come through YWAM, um, a helpful thing for me is I found two Facebook groups. Well, I found a Facebook group called um, Spiritual Abuse in YWAM and it had about a thousand people in it. And that group quite recently split. And now that group has shrunk a little bit and there was a new group um, that I... Uh, help with and that group is called post YWAM a place to heal a group that's focused as much as we can on the healing but the interesting thing is why did that split happen in um a group for people who have left YWAM and it happened my um theory is that it happened because some people were still in evangelicalism 
but had left YWAM and they had said, YWAM is unhealthy, but this form of Christianity is not unhealthy. And then that group split. And I don't, you know, like when I was in the church, I really disliked denominations. Why can't we all just be one? And it's fascinating that there are still splits happening in these groups that are post YWAM. And for me, um, you know, we needed to start a new group because I wanted to create a space that was safer i don't believe in safe spaces because i don't think there are any a group that was safer for 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 queer people and and for people who have been hurt by evangelical christianity so it's interesting if anyone's listening there are two groups out there if you want a space that's a little bit less um evangelical and you know using that language and promoting that form of christianity there's the uh the post I'm a place to heal group. And if you are still very much um, involved in evangelical Christianity, the other group will definitely be a more comfortable fit for you. Um, I can. It's interesting, Emily, that you tell that story because that's what happened. I was involved in a group called the Revival Centres and I started the support group originally as an evangelical and others joined. And then later, as I started to move more into this sort of using language like cults and looking at mind control and these other things. And I started to explore that people in the group turned on me and I wasn't welcome in the, in the group that I started because I wanted it to be more about, let's look at the psychological manipulation. Let's look at the damage. And the people that were still in evangelical Christianity were threatened by that because the very things that I was bringing up were the things that they were espousing and holding on to even still. So I've seen that happened before. And I think that's part of the deconstruction journey, that you may actually turn on the group, but not turn on the underlying belief. And then later as you do, well, then you have to start to move away from that Mm. as well. Something um, that I'm fascinated by, and I don't know if this is a conversation that you're going to have on your podcast at some point, is um, spiral dynamics. Have you um, thought about bringing in some conversations about that um, I've looked into spiral dynamics, um, but it's largely it's it's a theory um, more than any sort of you know scientifically backed idea, right? It's yeah. I, I I know that there's a lot of people that sort of say yeah, it's got some good stuff to it, but I I don't think it's really something that's held any sort of real academic rigor. Yeah, but I I I love that. I love I love what you've said, kind of saying things are theories, but isn't that how? People like like me and you are holding on to things now, um, rather than saying I, I, I will take that as a working theory. And I love um, thinking about matters of faith from like that scientific kind of po- point of view of thinking this is you know there's evidence for this. This is held up to be true now. Oh look, there's new evidence. Let's change our minds about that. Let's keep moving and keep growing and taking hold of the useful parts of things without thinking this is my new religion. I have to believe this 100%. But spiral dynamics, um, the theory, there's been elements of that, some aspects of it. I kind of think, does this work? Doesn't this work? I don't know. You know, skeptic, it's good to be a skeptic. But there's, there's parts of it that have been very useful for me because they've helped me judge my past self less and therefore judge others less who are kind of versions of my past self. And that's why it's been such a useful thing for me. You mentioned that, you know, I've I've had conversations with Phil Drysdale and he had a really extensive um, 
podcast series on 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 spiral dynamics um rob bell's talked about it i think he's he did a little series called me you and everyone um the liturgists have some old episodes that are very concise about about spiral dynamics but it's it's that idea um that we go through these kind of different phases of of growth and you know there is a red phase which is like the ego and you can have like criminals and people who are selfish and Donald Trump, you know, all of those people in that in that space. And then they they move on to this very blue space of kind of organized religion, which makes um, they then kind of say, um, we I need order in my life. I need it not to just be about me. And I I need to kind of go into this space where I kind of learn some rules and learn to kind of follow some orders. And that helps them recover from that kind of egotistical phase. And so therefore I kind of look at churches and you know even groups like YOM who are helping people who've just come out of prison and they're they're helping people grow and it's important and that that I look back at that space and I think they do that job well and I think the issue for me is when people get stuck in a certain place because if you keep on the the theory of spiral dynamics you know there's more movement and then you become more skeptical and then you miss community and then you go back again to kind of trying to connect with a spiritual side of yourself after you've given that up and there's so much space for growth for growth and and movement in it and and also not judging people who are in a different place to you and I I like that aspect of it and it's helped me not just look at people who are still in wire women shake my head and make tutting noises because I see them as just being people who are are doing their best and are doing important things in the spheres that they're operating in. Um, but I definitely hear you when someone comes along and goes, this is the model that works. This is scientific. This is the truth. <laughs> Anyone who's gone through what we've gone through, we're going to go, uh, hang on a minute, slow down. <laughs> are you doubting your religious beliefs? Having questions about changing or leaving your faith? Well, you're not alone. And recovering from religion is here to help. Learning how to live after questions, doubts, and changing your religious beliefs is a journey. The people at Recovering From Religion are intimately familiar with this path and are there to help you cross that bridge. Their passion is connecting others with support, resources, community, and most of all, hope. They offer both peer and professional support. Find out more by visiting recoveringfromreligion.org or find the links in our show notes. Having spent seven years in YWAM do you think at the core of the core of everything they do they are doing more good than harm generally and I know it's a generalization but do you think that I did some research for the podcast and met up very recently with some new friends who have only just left only just left like seconds ago left and I said, if you could erase YWAM forever, would you do that? You know, I asked them some some very direct questions and they obviously just kind of said, well, there's a lot of good people who are trying to do a lot of good work. And their story was um, such wonderful people really trying to make a difference, caring for the homeless, you know, doing stuff that was kind of real kind of ground up, you know, really caring for people and their conclusion was that the 
Wyoming is full of people like them who are doing good things. I personally met people in the red light district in Amsterdam. I met people in Argentina working with the homeless people in the train stations. I saw people doing a lot of good work. And I would not want to erase those people in any in any way. But what these new friends said to me is that they actually thought um, YWAM in the end was, was perhaps more of a hindrance than it was a help to these people and that these people would find another way to get the support system that they need in order to do those things because what it feels feels like YWAM is, is doing is is pushing towards this um you know the dominion theology where it's more about the numbers it's more about who's following Jesus than it is about how people are loving each other you know day to day so you, I, I can't look at why and say you know, it's full of it's full of narcissists, it's full of abusive people, it's full of beautiful people, kind people, some of the best people that I've met. Even you know YWAM leaders. There was one leader who, um, when my son was was born and I just left YWAM, he 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 came to visit me, and he came to visit me just after his own son had died in his twenties tragically. He, and even from his own grief, he was there showing love, showing showing kindness to me. And he said the words, I'm sorry that I push YWAM. It's just, it's what I know. It's what I know. And I push it because it's what I have. And, you know, good people doing their best. But I do think that the structure is more of a hindrance than it than it is a help because it's it, it's focused on forcing people to stay keeping the numbers there uh, and and it's conditional right i mean there is this help there, there is a goodness to what they do but it's conditional mm. and the ultimate goal is to bring people to jesus so while i while i understand that and i respect that that that's the motivation it is difficult to see past that of how conditional that help may be. And and I wonder if people don't actually come to Jesus, what happens? Like do, do they then move on to the next person if they've invested a certain amount of time and haven't won their soul? What what happens there? Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of just trying new things, uh, you know, going into new places, new ministries. The numbers of people who are actually converted, uh, it's hard to convert people. So I, I don't have a tally. Do you have a tally? Uh, I was actually uh, I was possibly the worst person at it. Emily. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Troy Troy would have a, a far better tally than I. I was horrendous at it <laughs> because I felt so embarrassed and ashamed of calling myself a Christian because I was really shit. I was a shit Christian. I, I, that said, though, Brian, you did go to Eastern Europe and do YWAM dramas. I did. I did on the streets of Estonia. Um, I did YWAM dramas. It was uh, we got trained by the local YWAM base in Melbourne, in Australia, and yes, I did, I did, and I, I, I tried them out in the city in Melbourne before we went. There was five or six of us doing them. Did There's you wear photos. face paint? I wore a mask. Mm. It was uh, yes, very YWAM and white gloves. There was and one. Some more black gloves. There was one drama that we used to do. It's called Angels and Demons. And you'd have to either, because you know, wear the scary demon makeup or the angelic makeup. And there was a choreography that was that was done to a 
a common track. I know you guys are a big fan. Yes, we we love Carmen. Mm-hmm. Well, we did love Carmen, and uh, it held. We loved Carmen in the dark. We did hold hands <laughs> in the dark. <laughs> Emily, I want to ask you: How do you go from? Oh, I'm going to do a gap year with YWAM to nearly a decade later. Still there? How did that happen? I think community is addictive, and I think that that, in many ways, is a good thing. Because I went away for a year. I went to Argentina for a year, and I I, I came back to the UK for a year and studied art and then I didn't really know what to do with myself because I'd found like a like a family I'd found people who loved me or or I felt that people that loved me and I'd I'd found a community and I just went back because it was exciting and it was it it was comfortable like real life is terrifying the idea of paying bills and filling in forms and and running a household and going to work and driving a car like those things are scary for young people so to be able to go off to a different country and have people who think for you is a massive relief because thinking you know it's exhausting it's (laughs) so I just I just went back I went back and I was part of an arts group in Argentina, and you know we 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 did um, many trips to the Edinburgh Arts Festival. We put on a big show over there. I had the main acting role, not because I'm good at acting, but because I was one of the few people who spoke English. And um, yeah, it was it, it it was full on. So yeah, I went back because of community. When you're living in a warehouse in Buenos Aires with forty people and there's someone there all of the time, there's a lot of fun to be had. Huge amount of fun. And the interesting thing was coming out of that. Um, you know, your experiences of coming out of church. Um, obviously, really hard experience. But I lived church twenty four seven. I had people. There was one. I remember one English friend walking into the tiny kitchen and there were so many people in the kitchen he had a pan above his head and he couldn't bring his arms down because there were, there were that many people crowding around him in the kitchen that he couldn't take the pan off his head because there was no space and you come away from that into a terraced house with a new baby in a in an English city and it's so quiet and it's so empty and your brain doesn't know how to regulate itself so Um, You could imagine having people having a break from YWAM and going, this is real life. You know, I'll just get me back in, just get me back in that that lovely warm swimming pool (laughs) because the real world can feel quite cold and scary. And and honestly, the real world does lack community. We do need community. And is there an elitism too to YWAM? Is it like we are the best of the Christians, maybe not the only ones saved, but we're the ones doing it the best, living it the best. I don't think we would ever, ever say that, but um, we would probably feel it. (laughs) Yeah, because of that kind of all in nature of YWAM, you're living it, you know, 24 seven. It's not just church on a Sunday. There was no pew warming happening there we were like on the mission fields we were we felt that we were we were there and we were doing it but sometimes I would kind of look at myself and think but what am I actually doing like I'm not in a church but I'm in the middle of Argentina I'm being supported by people from local churches but what am I doing I'm doing some painting um I'm walking around the city squares in in Buenos Aires 
praying against demonic strongholds. Um, is this useful? I think it's useful. <laughs> it It's really interesting. Um, the quote, I think it was towards the end of your your book, where I think you say something like, maybe the point is not to be complete. Maybe the point is to be completely alive. Now that, it seems a bit of a, a in conflict with fundamentalism. Fundamentalism really is about wholeness, completeness, and that is the ultimate goal in life. And Jesus will bring you that. Mm. But, you, you know, you talk about maybe, maybe that's not really what it's all about. What does looking fully alive what what is that for you? Is it a journey? Is it a destination? What did you mean by that quote? I think it's about not um, suppressing the truth, and you know that becomes the truth about yourself, the truth about your own emotions. There's an idea. I've I've visited evangelical churches, kind of out of, partly out of curiosity and partly just for the coffee and the conversation and to connect with neighbours. I've done it occasionally, and in those spaces, I've often felt that you have people um people will come up to me in the coffee break and kind of maybe tell me that they'd had a baby that had died or that they were suffering from depression and that they couldn't really talk to other people in the church about it because why because jesus had saved them he'd saved them from suffering he'd saved them from pain he'd borne their pain he'd healed them he'd taken away all of those things so that everything was, was okay so if everything wasn't okay then maybe Jesus hadn't really saved them. So there was this need to kind of keep up appearances in kind of evangelical Christianity for me, because if everything isn't going well, then maybe Jesus hasn't saved you. So I've always been very interested in the work of Peter Rowlands and get this for an interesting little, little phrase, but he describes the good news as the sub, the subtraction of the libidinal investment in the lost object get your head around that one so like the libidinal investment is is like the drive towards the lost object the feeling that there's something that that can complete us so he so peter Rowland, the the theologian describes the good news as as the release from that the release that there is something that can complete us and thinking about you know what jesus went through on the cross the death of God, you know, that space of incompleteness, that space of lack, that space of being able to be completely honest about the true state of our human nature is really liberating for me when I've kind of been raised in a space that has told me that I, that missing piece in my heart has been filled with a Jesus-shaped puzzle. And now I need to go around and tell everyone else that the missing piece in their heart can equally be filled with that Jesus shaped piece so then any kind of kind of depression or any fear or any gap in your own life has to you know you have to pretend that it's all okay and it's a beautiful thing when you can kind of let go of that you know I would people when people say to me are you still a Christian um what is your belief like now I tend to respond with well it depends on you know what you mean when you say God. God is a different word in everyone's mind. Christianity is a different word in everyone's mind. If I was forced to kind of define myself, I'd probably describe myself as a mystic because mysticism is the closest that I can get to, to kind of to wonder and to wanting to kind of continually acknowledge that we don't know it all, 
and it, perhaps we never will. But that sense of wonder is an important thing to me because, oh gosh, the just the feeling of having this worldview that you've got inside evangelical Christianity and the sense of certainty and the sense of sense of purpose, and then suddenly erasing it all and being left kind of empty without community, without that version of God that you're carrying around in your head. Um, and I kind of do want to say to people, we are still in a beautiful world and a fascinating love-filled universe that is endlessly um, appealing and endlessly interesting because when we're in the church we're told that God is everything that there is no love without God there's no meaning without God there's no life without God so suddenly when you remove that God from your head you can be left with a sense of emptiness even though that emptiness isn't actually what there is does that make any sense it does it's deep and I reckon our listeners will potentially wind back and listen to it again. And I think you refer to this a bit in your book around riding the wave of serendipity. You talk about living with that unpredictability, living through adventure, and really just, I think, grasping that and riding the wave. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. So comparing kind of my life in evangelicalism and my life now um and um a way that i talk about that that experience is you know is in my book is the, the title of the book hitchhiking with drunken nuns honestly between me and you i had this story i'd hitchhiked with drunken nuns across the andes and i just thought that is funny that is really it was such a funny story and it made a great title of a book and I had to sit with it for a while and think about it and think what what does that actually mean is there some hidden meaning in that kind of little little parable that was tucked away there in my life so there I am um without a uh, a bus with a couple of friends on the kind of the wrong side of the Andes and we'd, we'd miscalculated the bus times. We were properly stranded. We needed to, to travel on like a, a ferry, a car ferry across the Andes to get back through Chile, back to Argentina. And uh, it was upsetting. It was an upsetting experience. And then suddenly realising that the only way that we could get on this ferry was with a couple of different cars. And we had to see if we could hitchhike with one of them and spotted the, these nuns that we'd just been... Um, had been in the same restaurant as us and we would notice they were laughing and giggling and they were drinking. They were on holiday and they were having a really fun time. And the fact that they um, opened their car door and let us ride back across the uh, this lake and across the Andes and ride back to their orphanage in Ar Argentina was such a fun story. So for me, that became, so what happens in life? We miss a bus, um, rather than sitting and crying and thinking that everything's gone wrong, it's you stick out your thumb and you think, what's going to happen next? Maybe there'll be some drunken nuns who can take me uh, further down this route. And that comes back to this whole Christian evangelical narrative of God has a plan for your life, like a plan, like just one, just one plan, just one wife, just one husband, just one ministry. And if you are somehow accidentally 
throne from this route that God has planned for you, you are screwed, like fundamentally screwed because that was the plan. And all you can do is think, my wife's left me. I am no longer on that plan. That was God's plan, capital P, for my life. Like, now what? And there is basically, apart from just forgiveness, like, there, there's no way to get... You can't, like, remarry someone that you've divorced. So how do you get back onto God's plan? You can't. So I, my book was, was trying to unpick that and thinking... Um, yeah, so I have a friend called Andy Rain, and he founded the Northumbria community. And a few years ago, he read me a poem. And it was this, this beautiful poem about this kind of Celtic journey. And I can't remember the poem itself. But then he said to me, what do you think that was about, Emily? And I said, are you trying to say that God's will works like some sort of heavenly satellite navigation and will recalibrate itself when we take a wrong turn? He went, Exactly. You've put that really well. And that idea, right? Do you remember when we used to drive around before um, satellite navigation and we would get lost and we wouldn't be on the map and we had a route planned out on the map and then we would fight with our partner who was driving the car because we'd got lost and what that used to feel like. And then suddenly we've got this little computer in the car that's like, take this turn instead. All good. And we can chill. And actually thinking that maybe if there is a God or the universe or whatever we want to give to, you know, was it the punk theologian Barry Taylor? I think it might have been him who described God as the word for the blankets that we place over the unspeakable and the unimaginable mystery. You know, whatever we we want to, to think of as God, that's kind of higher power in our life. You know, what if there was something there that was recalibrating our lives and it didn't really matter? What if it doesn't really matter who you choose to marry? What if it doesn't really matter what job you choose to take? And that maybe that form of God is with you on that journey, whatever you do. So that for me is me trying to kind of unpick some of the fear-based doctrine that governed my life and try to fi- try to choose some some beliefs that will have a healthier effect and make me into a better happier person i think what's interesting emily is just listening to this i think for both brian and i it was this recalibration was about joining a new denomination maybe this denomination has it more right so we went from you know i went from revival centers to assemblies of god to baptocostal and then eventually we ended up in the churches of christ and then both of us ended up stepping out from there and then i've got other friends of mine that were Lutherans and then became Eastern Orthodox. And you see that a lot in the progressive space as well. Oh, maybe it's not the, you know, the Western view of original sin. Maybe it's the Eastern Orthodox view of original blessing and this kind of talk, but it's all tied to these boxes, isn't it? It's all tied to these denominations or to these historical expressions. Whereas it sounds to me like you're saying, maybe it's none of that. Maybe it's just stepping out and going where you go. And and really, if you think about it, if you want to believe in God or a God and God is everywhere, then that makes far more sense, doesn't it? That really kind of is how I think you put it quite well. And when people talk about deconstruction, 
Have you noticed how quickly the words reconstruction can follow? I've just started to deconstruct my faith. Uh, when can I expect reconstruction to start? Um, not on our part podcast, Emily, not on our podcast. We never talk about reconstruction. We talk about ter- ter- uh, burn the fucker down. That's what we talk about. Which is why I've been a regular listener because um, I understand how why people are eager to use the word reconstruction because it's scary. De- like burning stuff down is like, but where do I live now? I want a new shiny building. Like where can I live now? Um, but I, I just think you've just got to stay open. You can't go, 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 go building more things. And if you, and if you do, you've got to hold those structures very loosely. I wondered if I'd be able to share a poem because my walls poem does that quite succinctly. Yes. Please, please share it. I'll have to find it. In this my, might in be my our book. podcast's first ever poem. By really? The way. Except for the limericks we say to each other outside of recording you know like mary had a bicycle the seat was very blunt <laughs> and every time she mm-hmm. sat on it it went right up her ask your mother for sixpence that was beautifully profound yeah thank, thank you. you for sharing it yeah, the reason listen the reason i write poems and share poems is is i think poetry has a bad rep because i think people can try to write poems to show how clever they can be with words and how they they know things, but they're 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 hiding them away in all of their their clever words, and they want people to think, oh, that person knows things. They're not quite telling me what those things are, but they're sounding really clever. And I kind of wanted to try and do the opposite of that because I hate wasting people's time. I really don't like it. I don't like trying to get people to buy things. I hardly even sell my own art. I tend to sell art classes more than I sell my own art because I'd rather have someone someone have one of their own paintings on the wall. You know, I'm kind of a bit like that. It's quite hard. And, to and you generously sent us your book. Or in fact, yeah. you, sent us, you sent us virtual copies and hard copies without us having to to pay. So I, I'll testify, sister, that you are you are living that. Well, thank you for the the publicity. <laughs> so yeah, so when I'm trying to communicate a lot in few words with poetry, so I could read you a whole chapter of my book to describe this experience, or I could just read you a poem. So I kind of quite like that. I. I've done that so I can waste less of people's time. So I, this poem came about because of my leaving YWAM experience. So I am in YWAM in, um, in Buenos Aires and one night I have a dream. And in that dream, I heard this roaring noise, like, like this kind of low tremble, like, like I can't even do it, but if you can imagine just a deep kind of guttural sound that's coming from the distance and it kind of sweeps in and completely engulfs me in this kind of vision of a dream, you know, and these giant, I'm standing in the middle of this ancient kind of ruined temple space and these stones just start to tear down around me. And I wake up going, well, what was that? And I open the Bible and there's a verse from Haggai that talks about the new temple and the old temple. And I'm like, wow, what's God doing in my life? And then someone comes up to me and they said, listen, I've just had a word from God and God is doing new things in you. And I'm like, yes, hallelujah. Like I've had this dream. I was so convinced. I was so convinced that what it meant was the walls were coming down. Christianity as a secondhand experience that I'd read about in books, that experience that, you know, that, that, organizational kind of structure that I was inhabiting that was going to come down and God was going to build up this kind of new structure around me and I was going to be some sort of supercharged 
Christian in this kind of maybe maybe I thought it would be exactly the same but this time I would kind of own it it would be mine this was not going to be secondhand anymore you know it was the verses in the bible that say that god um a new temple will be built that would be more glorious than the first one so i was all for this you know i did not expect i did not expect that those walls were going to stay down i waited around for ages for some building work to happen and it didn't so if anyone's listening and they're sitting there looking at their watch waiting for the reconstruction i'm really sorry but I'm really, really sorry to have the bad news, <laughs> but it's not so bad. You know, camping in, in, in the open air without a tent, it's kind of amazing, scary. And, you know, there were, there were bears, yeah, but um, wildlife, you know, that's, it's it's real deal. So anyway, um, here's the poem, Walls. For two decades, I sat in churches on sunny days, the world outside further away than the time-locked saints in the stained glass windows. The sun's light fell on me through their tinted halos and I stretched out my toes in the borrowed light of transcendence. Until one day, I dreamt that I heard the earth roaring and I saw the great stones of the temple falling down around me. I was left exposed and cold because the truths that had been childhood friends had grown old and grey while I had stayed young. And I stood in the same spot for years, staring in shell shock at the broken walls, waiting for it to be rebuilt, because I had been told that the glory of the first temple would be nothing compared to the glory of the new. But they never came to understand glory in the way that I now do. I stopped regarding the rubble and noticed I could see the sky bending down to reach me like a hug from otherness in a gown of blue. I stopped looking down in frustration at the empty page I've come to be and saw instead before me the unbearable beauty of a newborn blanket of snow. Walls are the opposite of bridges. Walls are the arguments you're determined to win. Walls are built to keep you safe. Walls are built to keep you in. Thank you. That, that is magnificent. I do love it. Do you know what I resonated with the, then? The, the, that epitome, epitome, excuse me, that epiphany I had about the box and when I was kicked out of the box and then realizing, oh, they can have the box. I've got this whole wide world. And when you, Emily, were saying about, I looked up and I saw the sky, no longer the rubble, that, that was just awesome. Because that's it, isn't it? That's what stepping out does. You just see there's so much more. And all of a sudden your, your, your field of vision is just expanded. That's what deconstruction is. You know, it's, yeah. it's about being open to so much more than God in a box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw um, recently bumped into uh, one of my old YWAM leaders and I kind of, uh, do you ever feel kind of the need to defend yourself slightly? And I, I kind of said to him, um, I said to him, like, don't think that I'm like, I've turned my back on everything and that I'm kind of just running away from God because 
I have only ever pursued love and and truth and and been fascinated by the person of Jesus. And I believe, I believe that Jesus was 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 not someone who turned people away. Like I believe that 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 Jesus was about creating a culture of compassion and not a culture of purity. So moving away from this kind of kind of hard line gays are not, you know, it is not biblical to be gay and God hates gay people and God wants gay people to change. And I, you know, I just said to him, like, I I am not down with that because I don't think that that is Christ-like. Like, please, this idea that that people who are deconstructing and have walked away from their their previous kind of style of faith, that they've done so out of a lack of love, you know, or out of a desire to to turn their backs on Jesus, you know. I think it's because a tax collector is basically quite a quite a reputable profession now, isn't it? So we needed someone else to hate. So I think we sort of turned our turned our eyes on the gays. Yeah. I I think it's a really interesting point though, Emily. I mean, that is a very common a common accusation. They've walked towards the darkness. They've drifted away from the light. They've gone to the bad place. They've gone away from what we can only provide, which is the goodness, the reference point, that place where surely, surely if you go anywhere else, your life is going to be less. I was told that when I left mm. a denomination to go to another denomination, not even walking away from Christianity, mm. that I would be a lesser person than what I would be if I had stayed with the AOG rather than going to the Baptists. Pew so warmer was the was, actual word they used, Brian, pew warmer. Pew, pew warmer was, absolutely. And because I was on a trajectory to ministry, um, I, I was seen as a disappointment because I was walking away with the plans that they had for me. Um, not not any of the plans that I might have had, but the plans they had for me. So I think I think it is really interesting that you articulated that really well that you still held on to those key tenets, those things that led you into YWAM, led you into a place where you wanted to do something better, where you wanted to be a better person. So you hadn't lost that. But walking away and being, you know, a bit of distance from it now, what are some of those things that you have retained, some of those things that you've brought forward with you that were such incredibly important lessons from your days as a fundamentalist? I think simply the willingness to get up at before six o'clock in the morning to talk to you guys and to kind of spread the word. I think that shows that a certain level of, of commitment, doesn't it? You know, I'm still like absolutely doing my bit, showing up. Yeah, there's a lot of things. Just the the level of like when you of being willing to to be to be committed to to put yourself fully into something. And I kind of like the idea that that when you believe something, believe it properly. You know, when you do something, do it properly. When you, I get obsessed with so many 
different parts of my life and I've deconstructed so many different things you know you deconstruct religion then suddenly I deconstructed education and briefly took my kids out of school and instead of sending them to a school that they weren't connecting with they were they had I brought in someone from Switzerland who who educated them for a month in skateboarding and then someone from um, France who educated them for a month in with her YouTube skills and so suddenly when you're willing to to go all in you continue going going all in for with everything food I started thinking about how we cook and how we consume food I'm completely obsessed with going to my local shop every evening and buying all of the food that they're about to to throw in the bin because of the sell-by date on it so I I buy all of this food for like 10p like last night you know you buy I buy bread I buy like a whole chicken for 10p because I'm like what are we doing we're we're killing animals and then we're just putting them in the bin because we're not eating them in time so it's like that idea that of looking at everything not just um one area of our life not just our religious and spiritual life but thinking you know analyzing stuff and asking questions about things I've always been the same person I realize you two have as well you know even when I was in the church I was I was analyzing and I was kind of using you know using more you know quite a lot of my brain and kind of looking at things from lots of different different angles and I've always been the same person and I kind of, I think sometimes you can start to think, oh, I was a different person back then because I believed all of this stuff. But I think we we are who we are, no matter what organisations we're in or out of, right? It's kind of... I, I think, though, and obviously there's times when this didn't happen, but from what I, I'd see and read of you, you stuck to that core of who you were and tried to make it, even as a YWAM missionary. I mean, sure, there was the cognitive dissonance there but you held those core values I can't say I always did that I faked a lot of it sometimes because I knew that I couldn't I I couldn't be true to myself and actually make it in a fundamentalist world so I did definitely over time start to push back more and more on that and particularly around things like inclusivity and I did I you know I stopped believing in hell I stopped believing even when I was a a fundamentalist stopped believing in um that you couldn't be gay and be Christian all of those sort of things I guess so you seem to have stuck to stuck to your guns on some of that stuff and I don't think everyone can say that and you've come out the the other side probably with a level of integrity that many perhaps didn't attain so well done you know celebrate that in your life I do also have my share of regrets you know there's there's stuff in in Wyoming I went to um attended a protest in the middle of Buenos Aires a protest against gay marriage and when you I think it was Maya Angelou who said when you know better you do better when you know better, you do better. So you look back at your past decisions and the things that you've done and you think, I didn't know. And if you're playing the game by its rules, if the rules of the game are, you need, especially as men in the church, you need to be powerful, you need to dominate, you need to be strong, you need to own that space. That is what God expects of you. If you're doing your best to the people who you respect and they're telling you, you need to be a certain sort of person, to help advance the kingdom of God, 
you know, you're, you're doing your best, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Emily, we are coming to the end, sadly, because I think I, I could, I could chat with days, you forever. The end of days. <laughs> the end of days. The end of days. We could chat forever. but This episode is wanna... destined for fire. <laughs> we want to celebrate your books. I mean, you're, I think you're, I haven't read your um, The Quiet Woman book yet, but I have read Hitchhiking with Drunken Nuns and just loved it. Again, I, I think it's something that get a hold of it, people, and read it because it really is a fantastic read. I will do a review on The Quiet Woman after after I've read it. But I think get, a, get hold of those. You can check out your artworks also. You are an, an acclaimed artist, so... What we'll do is we'll get you to send us some references that we can put in the show notes that people can check you out and check out where to get your book, et cetera, et cetera. Your life just is so adventurous, so much fun, and I think that's what makes you so engaging and it makes your reading your book so incredibly engaging as well. But what's next? What's next for you? Is it riding the wave of serendipity and not really knowing or you've got something planned that's coming up next one of my mottos is don't say no unless you've got a good reason and honestly there are so many good reasons to say no we do need to keep on saying no to things but you know saying yes to this podcast and just see seeing what what comes up I'm about to start um a podcast with Maggie Rowe check her out and I'm sure you'll invite her on your your podcast at some time and that's that's going to be very exciting what we're going to be doing because both of us have come from kind of a bit of an evangelical bubble um, we will be going out into the world and finding words from other cultures and other perspectives that we don't have in our culture and in our perspective. And we'll be using those those words to kind of unlock the little the little kind of personalized news feed that we get locked into. So rather than just talking about it's you know just grumbling about you know our evangelical pasts it's kind of nice to keep our eyes open and to look out into the world and say what beautiful words are there what beautiful parts of other cultures and other perspectives are there that we're missing so that's kind of one little podcast hosting journey that I'm going to be going on which is going to be a lot of fun I think one thing I'd just love to kind of end on is thinking about how important it is to choose the sort of God that, that, that we're believing in. Because when you are um, in an abusive church and you have an abusive God, you take that abusive God home with you in a way that you don't do with an abusive boss if you're working. It's 24-7, you've got those voices in your head. So kind of consciously and deliberately um, going into kind of finding community that can help us unpick the sort of God that we've kind of subconsciously got in our heads and and creating a God that is kinder and more compassionate and more loving is kind of the journey that I'm that I'm on as intentionally as I as I can be because I think that um so important for our mental health and the well-being of life on earth Emily, I'm really glad that we've had you on today because I know personally we can look back a lot through this podcast, look back at what was wrong. Um, and, you know, we will certainly interview people that are on different trajectories and that are, you know, successful. But I love the fact that you've really come in and talked about looking forward and talked about growing and becoming bigger and 
having a broader view, it's just been really, really refreshing. And for what it's worth in terms of our own journey, meaning Brian and I in the podcast, it's just a nice change of pace. So thank you so much for being you. And thank you so much for being, what was it that um, Mark Fennell said to us? He said about being, being radically you. No, what was it he said? Oh, yes, I can't remember. It was sort of, it's aggressively sort of like you. That's right. No, he said, he said, you. be aggressively you. And so I want to yeah. thank you for coming in and being aggressively Emily. It's been awesome. Thank you. That's a lovely compliment. And it's wonderful to see your beautiful faces after we've been for so long. And, um, and likewise. Thank you for all so. you're doing and for forming this wonderful new community. Very excited to watch and see where it all ends. Thanks again, Emily. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes.